Well, good morning, guys. Uh, like Luke said, my name's Taylor. Uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, um, I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to get to know you a little bit, at least say hello. So come find me afterwards, and uh, I'd love to, love to get to know you a bit. We, uh, like Luke said, are in this series that we're calling Stories from Another World where we're looking at these parables or stories that Jesus told during his earthly ministry because he told them for the purpose of showing us what the kingdom of God was like, this inbreaking reality of the reign of God where God's way of living breaks into our reality, transforms the way that we live our life and is an eternal reality that we hope for, not just for now, but for the future, for those who follow Jesus as we learn about his words and his ways. And so we're looking at these stories that he told, asking ourselves, these questions of what does it look like to live in light of what Jesus is teaching us now? What is Jesus teaching us about this new reality that he is bringing, about this reality that we experience in part now and will experience in full for eternity? And so we're looking at these stories from another world. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 10 to 27. If you got your own Bible or you want to pull it up on a device, you can follow along with me there. Quick note before we jump into it, because I, I think this actually matters for our parable in particular is uh, that when you're, when you're reading a parable, a parable is a story that Jesus is telling for the purpose of telling a big idea. And so sometimes in these stories, there's these details in the story, but the, the point of the story isn't those details. And so as we're interpreting it, it's important to remember that uh, we don't want to get lost in the weeds. We don't want to uh, read too much into the details of the story. We want to focus on the big picture. That's important for our story here, because as you'll see, I'm sure in a moment, uh, that the story that Jesus is telling has a, a character, if you want to frame it that way in the story, that Jesus is, uh, that Jesus is comparing himself to in a, in a certain way. But that character uh, is a ruler of, uh, of, in the first century where Jesus, the, the context that Jesus is telling the story, and the character acts like a ruler of the first century. In other words, he's pretty harsh. And so it's important for us to not press that detail too much of saying this is what Jesus' attitude and heart is like. Jesus is just using this character to teach us a big idea. I'm not going to preach all the sermon before we even read the text and get into it, so I won't tell you what that is. But just so you know, suffice to say, we're not pressing the details too much in this parable. We're looking for the big idea as we read right now and listen to God's word. So all that said, we got a lot to cover. Let's dive right in. Luke chapter 19, verses 10 to 27. One sentence of context, and then the story that Jesus tells, and, uh, and we'll see what God has to say to us. So I'll read our text, I'll pray, and then we'll have a, a God's word party. Okay, Luke chapter 19, 10 to 27, starting in verse 10. This is the words of Jesus in, in verse 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, came to seek and to save the lost. And then verse 11, as they heard these things the people who are with him, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And because of that, he said this. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. A minus is a more or less three months wages. So big chunk of change. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. 
when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minus has made 10 minus more. Awesome investment. And then he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall receive authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minus has made five more. Pretty good return. And he said, uh, uh, you will, you will uh, reign over five cities. And then another came to him saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, well, then I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming back, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it, to the one who uh, give it to the one who has 10 minus. And then he said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. And he said, I tell you that everyone who, for everyone who has, more will be given. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them to me here and slaughter them before me. That's where the detail is important, not pushing the details. That's God's word for us. Written by Luke, a human author, writing in his own uh, time and context and voice, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, God has something to say to us. So let's pray now and ask that he would speak. Let's talk to God. Lord, um, we come before you. We're so grateful that you speak. You are speaking by your word, through your spirit. You speak to us. And we pray right now, as we open up your word, would you open up your hearts? We thank you that every single person here matters to you. You see us. You love us. You call us to live life with you. God, you are the greatest treasure. You're the one our hearts were made for. We pray that we would see it. Would you open up our hearts? God, thank you that, um, that you love us each where we're at, whether this stuff is familiar and we, we've read this before, or um, walking with you has been something we've been doing for a long time, or whether this is totally new. We wouldn't even consider ourselves a follower of Jesus yet. We're just curious and checking this out, or maybe we were dragged here and don't want to be here. But I pray for every single one of us. I pray that you would have a fresh word for us. I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, and we thank you that we can let you in, let you into our true, real selves as we are, because your grace covers us. That we know that in Jesus, there's nothing any of us could ever do that would make you love us less. And so we can bring our full self into the light without fear. God, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would transform us. Would you give us not just information for our heads, but transformation in our hearts so we would become the kind of women and men that you always made us to be. We thank you that all this is possible by your spirit because of your grace, because you loved us long before any of us loved you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, reality is our friend. Reality is our friend. This was a mantra of a, a former boss and mentor of mine, and it is almost comical the 
frequency with which he would use this phrase when we gathered together as a staff team. Reality is our friend. Anytime we had to make a plan for the future, reality is our friend. Anytime we were in a strategic planning session, reality is our friend. Anytime we were assessing something that we had done, reality is our friend. And here's what he meant. What he meant was that when we're, uh, when we're leading something, when we're uh, taking something towards the future, when we're making a plan, when we're assessing how something went, when we're dreaming about what our goals will be for the next year, there's nothing more helpful as a starting point than an accurate picture of reality. You can't make good plans, you can't lead well, unless you know what reality is, unless you're willing to embrace what reality is, to actually name it for what it is. Reality is our friend. I'll tell you a very uh, tangible way, physical way, that I experienced this at least one point in my life. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was on the football team, and uh, I got bumped up to the varsity team. And so I'm like young, scrappy, nervous, trying to prove myself. And like three games into the season, maybe four games into the season, um, I got the first game where I got some like meaningful playing time. And so I'm on the punt team, um, which if you don't know football, no, don't worry. But I'm on the punt team. So I'm there. I got a job. I got to block a guy. And then the other team's going to get the ball. So I got to go try to tackle a guy. There you go. Simple. Um, so do my job. Boom. Block the guy. Uh, Dominic, how was that kick step? Was that all right? Any good? Dominic's a coach. Okay. Thanks, man. There you go. So block, block, then I'm running down the field to make a tackle. And remember, I'm young. I'm eager to prove myself. This is one of the first times I've gotten real playing time. We happened to be playing a team that was, at least on paper, much better than us. Pretty good team. They're like uh, one of the top 50 ranked teams in the state at the time. So eager to prove, big situation. Block my guy, and then I'm running down the field, and I see the ball carrier catch the ball for, off the punt. And I don't see anything else. And I'm thinking, this is my moment for glory. This is it. I did my job, and now I'm going to make a big play in the middle of the field where no one else is around, and everyone's going to see it. I'm going to get the attaboys and the butt slaps and the high fives and the chest bumps. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to get more playing time because of this. This is great. So I'm booking it down the field. I'm going to light this guy up, right? Little did I know, because I did not embrace reality at the time, that coming from my left side was someone meant to block me and block me very hard because I didn't see him coming because I was so laser focused on what I thought reality was, which is that I was in the open field with no one around me. And so I'm running down the field and all of a sudden I just feel this immense thud like where his helmet hits right at the sweet spot, like, oh, like right at the, the front left side of my shoulder pad. He's below me so he just kind of like gets some good lift into me and I'm, they call it a decleater, like my cleats are off the field, flying in the air. And I'm not exaggerating, I was in the air, like knocked off my feet for long enough to think, oh man, this is embarrassing. Like I'm, before I hit the ground, I have enough time to think, gosh, this is embarrassing. Not just, oh man, I didn't see that coming and I need to get back up and get back in the play. No, I didn't see that coming and I didn't get up in the play and I've still got enough time to think about how embarrassing this is. So I'm flying through the air, I land on the ground, this huge guy stands over me and he you know, yells out some profane and if we're honest, misogynistic slurs at me and uh, I'm on the ground, ah, oh, no, okay. But I didn't embrace reality as my friend. I thought reality was one thing thought I was in the open field, thought I was unblocked, thought I was gonna make a big play. All the while, reality was actually that someone was coming to block me, and if I had just done what you're supposed to do, which is keep your head on a swivel, 
keep your, your eyes on your surroundings. I would have known that reality was something different and I wouldn't have gotten thrown through the air by this massive dude sent to come and block me. Reality is our friend. Embracing and knowing reality is our friend because it's the starting point of knowing what we're supposed to do next. Had I known the guy was coming to block me, I would have acted accordingly. I didn't know he was coming to block me. I didn't understand reality, and so I didn't act accordingly. Reality is our friend. All of which begs the question, what is our reality? And not just as individuals, because of course we have individual circumstances of our lives, individual situations, individual stages of life. Of course that's all very important and relevant. But the question that we ask as we come to this text and we want to learn what Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom, about life in his kingdom, about we want to be in this church that respond to the grace of God by living in the words and ways of Jesus. What big reality are we living in? What is the ultimate big story that we're a part of that should inform the way that we live? I love the way, and if, uh, I have said this before, you will, if you are around the river, you will hear me say this again, but I love the way that uh, a Scottish philosopher named Alistair McIntyre put it. He put it like this. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part Reality is our friend. And so we might ask the question, what is our reality and how is it our friend? What story are we a part of and therefore what are we to do? And this is what Jesus is showing us in Luke chapter 19 as he's telling the story of the 10 minus. I actually don't know how to pronounce that word. I was just telling uh, Hans and Tina over here while we, were, while we were chatting. Like, I'm giving this whole sermon. I don't actually know the proper pronunciation for the word minus, minus, minas. Who knows? I'm going to say minus. There we go. And then now we have a whole church that maybe is pronouncing a word from the Bible wrong. I don't know. But it's just a pronunciation issue. It's not the end all be all. Anyway, um, the 10 minus, he's showing us this parable, trying to reframe to give us an accurate picture of reality, telling these, these uh, people that he's speaking to, and then Luke recounting us for it to us today, trying to reframe our view of reality so that we would know how to live accordingly. So we're going to come to this text, come to this parable, and we're asking these two questions that Jesus is teasing out in this parable. What is our reality, and how is it our friend? What story are we living in, in other words, and what should we do to live accordingly? What is reality, and how is it our friend? And so we'll start with this first question. What is our reality? See, uh, as this parable opens, before Luke goes about recounting this parable, he gives us this really critical piece of context. And I said earlier, one of the keys to understanding a parable it's to not get lost in the weeds, to not press the details too much, to look for the big idea that Jesus is, is teaching us. Another key is to look for the context. Sometimes the gospel writer, the author, uh, will tell us exactly what the context is in this case, like as he does in this case. Sometimes the writers will just show us some context by um, highlighting certain stories around the parable, Jesus' interactions with people that will kind of give us a picture of what the big idea might be. But in this case, he tells us. And so he says in verse 11, as they heard these things, more on that later, that's the, the son of man came to seek and save the lost part, that's the things they heard, more on that in a second. But he said, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because, and here's what we're going to focus on here, 
because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So that's why he's telling them this parable. He's telling this parable because they think the kingdom of God is coming now. More on that in a second, what that means. So then he tells them, a nobleman went, left to a far country to receive for a kingdom and then return. So what do we see here? So we see Jesus is telling this parable because his disciples, the people that are with him, um, they're going towards Jerusalem. So where we are in the story is Jesus uh, is about to go into Jerusalem where he's going to celebrate the Passover with uh, his disciples. That's where the Last Supper takes place. And then he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be executed and killed. And then ultimately, we learn in the story, rise victorious over death. But he's about to die. That's the context here. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die uh, very shortly here. But they suppose that because he's going to Jerusalem, this is go time for the kingdom of God. See, these are, uh, uh, these followers of Jesus, they, uh, they're devoted to the Old Testament scriptures. They know God's word in the Old Testament. They know God's dealings with his people, the children of Israel. And so they've got in their minds at this point passages like the last two chapters of the, the book of Ezekiel, which is this prophetic book where the prophet um, at, this, at the end of Ezekiel, envisions this coming day where all the brokenness of the world is going to be set right. And in this vision that Ezekiel has, which is full of this beautiful imagery, God's presence comes to dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. So God's presence, his, his actual presence, his, his the actual manifest presence of God, comes to dwell with his people at the culmination of history. In, in, and, and in the presence of God now flows life and the undoing of all the brokenness in the world. So in the last two chapters of Ezekiel, it's envisioned as this river flowing from where the presence of God is, and it flows down from the hill where the temple is, down all the way into this place in, in, in Israel called the Dead Sea, which is barren. It's a salt lake where nothing can live or flourish or thrive. It's in the middle of the desert. It's, it's like it sounds. It's dead, Dead Sea, real creative. And so this river flows from the presence of God into the, into the Dead Sea, and from this river flowing from the presence of God comes flourishing and life, and the Dead Sea itself is transformed into this oasis where there's animals and there's lush growth and it's this beautiful place that would be a beautiful place to live. And so they're, they've got passages like this in their mind where they're thinking Jesus has come, he's the one God has promised, and now God is going to do on earth what he promised to do. He's going to hear on earth undo all the brokenness of the world, undo the power of sin, undo all the unjust systems, create a place of flourishing so that creation itself, the earth itself, is going to be everything that it was always meant to be, but even sweeter for having been uh, redeemed from its brokenness. They think that's happening now. And Jesus tells them this parable to say, well, not exactly. Because in the parable, the ruler, the king of the kingdom, goes away before receiving the kingdom and then returns to reign after having gone away. And so what Jesus is showing us, what Jesus is reframing for us, is he's showing us that the story does in fact include an end where the king reigns in his creation. That that expectation of the disciples actually is accurate. That the, the, the ultimate hope for those who follow Jesus is not getting zapped into heaven. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's not fire insurance. It's this 
beautiful reality where creation itself is renewed. At the end of history, um, if you look at the, the end of the book of Revelation, the final scene in the end of Revelation is heaven itself coming down to earth to renew and transform earth in a new heavens and a new earth. And the king says, behold, I'm making all things new. And so the ultimate hope is not getting zapped up into heaven and wearing a white robe and playing a harp for all of eternity, though heaven is real until Jesus comes again. But the ultimate hope, it probably won't involve robes and harps. Uh, that, I don't know where that came in, but not from the Bible. Anyway, um, so... That's real, but the ultimate hope is Jesus reigning as king in his creation, as it was always meant to be. God himself, his presence here with us in a renewed creation, free from injustice, free from brokenness, free from suffering and sin and death. And anyone who wants to be with God forever, anyone who surrenders themselves to him, anyone who, uh, who, uh, who acknowledges their brokenness and sin and inability to make themselves right with God and accepts the fact that he loves us despite of our inability to make ourselves right with, on, on our own terms. Anyone can be in that kingdom with him who say yes. But there's something that has to happen first. That Jesus isn't just going to come in, and in their mind, they were thinking from their lens, Jesus is going to come in, we're oppressed by the Romans, he's going to kick out the Romans, and that's going to be what this is all going to look like. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's something that has to happen first. And the story goes on, we don't see it here, but we know what has to happen first is that Jesus not only is going to reign as king, but before he reigns as king, he dies for his own. He goes and dies in the place of sinners like you and me. He bears our penalty, the debt of our sin that we've incurred, and he brings it into himself and pays for our sin that we could be forgiven for every sin, past, present, and future, to be with God forever. And that's got to be what happens first. And that's where the story is going. That's the reality that we live in. This reality where Jesus has done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. He's already made a way for us to be made right with God. And, because, and when we come into relationship with him, when we trust him with our lives, when we choose to, choose to accept his grace, his unconditional blessing on us and love for us that he's accomplished for us in Jesus' death paying for our sin. When we accept that reality, now we experience the presence of God in part by the Spirit now we have this down payment of the kingdom, this partial experience of the kingdom now. It's what theologians call the already but not yet. This already experience of the kingdom, this already, we, we experience it in part now, but Jesus has not yet come to reign as king. That is yet to come in the future. And so Jesus is reframing reality for us. He's reframing reality from them where they think the kingdom's coming now. He's reframing reality for us now until we look back at what Jesus has done and we see that our ability to be in the kingdom and to experience part of it now, the presence of God now, the, 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 the presence of the spirit in our lives now, and the new reality of life with God and relating to God, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of his unconditional love for us. We experience all of that now. And in the process, we learn to live in the words and ways of Jesus, this new way of living. But there's, an, there's a not yet to come. There's something more to come, an eternal hope to come that's not just a ticket to heaven. It's creation itself being renewed. It's life as it was always meant to be and life everlasting, life never ending. That our, our ache and our pain and our frustration over the ways that we know the world is not the way that, it's, that it was meant to be, that all of that will one day be undone, truly. Not just made up for with, with a consolation prize of heaven, but actually undone here. 
And Jesus is reframing the story for us. The king is going to be a king reigning in a kingdom, but he went away first before he returns to reign as king. He's reframing the story. And this is, this is a reality that Jesus is inviting us to critique and reframe the stories that we might be buying into about our reality in both our head and our heart. He's inviting us to see that, uh, that this reality that he's describing is true reality. And so we now need to embrace that true reality and live in light of it, which means we need to see the ways that maybe we've bought into a, a version of reality in either our heads or our hearts, a way of living, a way of navigating the world, a way of thinking about the way things are, that are not in line with what Jesus is showing us is actually true, that we can live in the kingdom in part now by the presence of his spirit because of his grace, and that there's an ultimate reality coming where he's going to renew and restore that which was lost. And so this is something that should help us critique a couple of really uh, influential views kind of in our context that we see play out uh, in our world, in our place, in our time, particularly in a place like the South Bay. I think at first, this should really critique what I, could, what I call the holy huddle view of reality. And the holy huddle view of reality sees reality as this world's a mess, it's broken, nothing's the way it should be, but we're going to go to heaven, this world's all going to burn, and we're just, we're, we got the hope of heaven coming for us, and so we just need to bunker down, we need to, we need to get in the holy huddle with all the other holy people, and uh, the rest of the world sucks, and we're all together, and then we're in a holy huddle, and maybe we do outreach, right? Maybe we outreach. We go from the huddle, and we outreach out, and maybe try and bring some people back into the holy huddle. But we're in the holy huddle, and then we're just hoping for heaven, and we're bunkered down. And Jesus' view critiques the holy huddle view. Jesus' view says, no, that's not reality. I'm breaking in. You can experience the kingdom of heaven now. And one day, I'm going to renew this place. I'm not just going to zap you out to another place like beam me up, Scotty. I'm going to renew you here, renew here and now. And so how you live here and now, living on earth as it is in heaven, matters now. It's not just something we're hoping for for the future. It's something that we begin to live now. Um, there was, recently, there was a, a review in The New Yorker that I, I came across. Uh, it was reviewing the work of... Uh, in, in, an atheist philosopher, a guy named Martin Hagland, but it, it summed up a critique of the holy huddle view really, really well. The, the, the article in the New Yorker put it like this, said, the problem with believing in eternity, so he's, he's, using, he's critiquing this holy huddle view. The problem with this belief is not that eternity doesn't exist, but that it is undesirable and incoherent. It kills meaning and collapses value. And what the author was writing as he's summarizing the work of this atheist philosopher is that when you believe in the holy huddle, you just huddle up in your little holy huddle and have nothing to say to the world, nothing good to offer the world. It collapses meaning in this life because you're just waiting for something else to come. And I think that's a really fair critique of the holy huddle view. The thing is, Jesus just beat us to the punch. Jesus is making the same critique 2,000 years ago. That that's not reality. Reality is an inbreaking reality of the kingdom in part now with a hope for a renewed creation in the future, that how we live here in creation matters as a result. But this also critiques, this is dated now, but what I call the YOLO view. You only live once. It's from a Drake song from like 10 years ago. You already know, though, you only live once. That's the motto. 
that's, that's the thing. You only live once, that's the point. That's what you need to hear. Okay, yeah, other 30-somethings are snapping, everyone else. Some of you think I'm old, and some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, you crazy young person. Whatever, that's what, you do. That's what happens with any cultural reference. Point being, uh, the YOLO view basically says, this is all we've got. You only live once, and so this is all we've got, and so the thing that matters now is maximizing your lifestyle, maximizing pleasure in this life, however you define pleasure, however you define happiness. And so you only live once, so live up your lifestyle. And what I find is that many people don't necessarily believe that intellectually. They don't believe this is all there is necessarily on an intellectual level. And yet in the heart, functionally, we, we live in this way. Man, we're anxious about getting to, we have to maximize lifestyle now. I have to get the mo suck the most marrow out of life now. And the point here is not that enjoying life's good things is bad. By all means, enjoy every one of life's good things as much as we can. They're good gifts from God. But the point is that lifestyle itself, what we experience now itself, can never carry the weight of our hope, of our soul. This is an, in an inherently fragile way to live. One, because it has no answer to suffering. Because even life's best stuff can get taken away from us in a broken world. And many of us know that firsthand. I'd say probably at some level, all of us know that firsthand. And secondly, because even when we have the good things, they can't carry the weight of our soul. I love the way that um, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, in his novel, The Day of the Locust, He's writing about, uh, it's L.A. at the, at the early, uh, early 20th century, and he's writing about people that have come from the East Coast to L.A. because L.A. is like the dreamland, right? It's like, it's the promised land. I'm going to go out west. I'm going to go where it's sunny. I'm going to go where there's opportunity. I'm going to go where it's happening. This is the happening place. And so they're, they're, they're coming to L.A., transplants to L.A., hoping that this is going to be the thing, that the good things of Southern California are going to be the things. And then when they get here, it's awesome for a little bit, and then they become disillusioned. And there's a passage, uh, I love the way that Hawthorne puts it, he puts it like this. He says, once there, they discover that the sunshine isn't enough. They get tired of oranges, even of avocados. Nothing happens. They don't know what to do with their time. They watch the waves come in at Venice, but after you've seen one wave, you've seen of all. Their boredom becomes more and more terrible. So he's saying they've got the good life. They've got the Southern California good life. They've got, they're in Venice, not South Bay. Close enough, though. They've they got the, the South Bay good life, but it's not enough. YOLO, the YOLO view, this is, that this is all we have, maximize your lifestyle, can never carry the weight of our souls. It's like St. Augustine said long, long time ago. He said, we were made for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so wherever you're coming from this morning, the first order of business is to reframe our view of reality according to what Jesus is showing us. And so the invitation of Jesus now, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're just here exploring what Jesus is inviting you to see is a whole new reality, a reality that's not the holy huddle, a reality that's not YOLO, it's not you only live once, maximize your lifestyle, just try and live for the here and now. It's something so much richer. It's God now, the presence of God now, the one we were made for now, and an eternal hope where this world, at the end, at the culmination of history, when the king returns, gets renewed to what it was always meant to be. 
It's to step into this new reality that we enter in not by what we earn, not by making ourselves the right sort of person, but by recognizing that Jesus on his cross has already done what we couldn't do for ourselves, has already paid the debt of our sin that stood between us and God because God loves us unconditionally. And so it's to see that new reality. For the rest of us that know Jesus, it's about, it's about tweaking and making sure that we're really embracing this reality, not just in theory, but in practice, in our heart, in the way that we live in the day-to-day, that that's how we view all the events of our lives. That's the context in which we view all the events of our lives taking place. That's our reality. And so now we'll, we'll close by asking the second question, how is reality our friend? We see this new reality, the inbreaking, already not yet kingdom. That's by grace, not by us performing for, for God. It's Jesus having done, already done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. But how is that our friend? And here's where we get to the central mechanics of the parable, and I'm going to sum them up quickly so don't get too nervous. But uh, the central mechanic of the parable is there's this reality where the king has got a kingdom, and he's coming back to reign in his kingdom, but he hasn't come back yet. And the ruler gives his servants each resources, right? The minus, minus, minas, who knows? The minus. And the resources are under the care of the servants. So the king says, here's your resources that are mine. I give them to you. They're under your care, but they ultimately belong to me. And then the ruler gives these resources to his servants so that they would use him according to his, his values, his goals. So in this case, the ruler's like, here's, here's a big chunk of change. Go, go engage in business. Get me a return. I want a nice ROI. When I come back, I expect to see a nice ROI. And so he leaves and he comes back, and the servants present what they've, what, what they've done with what the king has given. Say, so that's the mechanics of the parable. So what Jesus wants us to see here is uh, in the context of the already not yet kingdom reality that we find ourselves in, where the king is coming back. He's, we experience him now in part and in full in, a, in the future at the culmination of history. And it's going to be awesome, all injustice undone, all suffering undone, final end of sin, creation as it was always meant to be, but even sweeter because it will be eternal and redeemed. So Jesus wants to see, in light of that reality, we each have been given resources from the king. Our personality, our place and time, our network of relationships, our financial resources, our gifts and our skills and our, our gifts of the Holy Spirit. We, we have each been given something from the king, each something different. We haven't all been given the same thing, but each of us have been given many things. And it's in, in the parable, he's, they're giving finances, but finance is only, is only just one small piece of what Jesus wants us to see here. It's we've been given many things down to our very selves, down to our place in time, down to our network of relationships. And we've been given these things from the king. Ultimately, they're from the king under our care for the king's goals. And so God has given them to us that we would use them according to his goals. It's the posture of what we often call stewardship, using resources given by the king according to the heart and goals of the king. Now, none of that's easy, but that actual mechanic of the parable is fairly straightforward. We've been given something, we've been given something that belongs to the king, and we've been giving it for the purpose of using it according to the king's values and goals. None of that's easy, but it is at least in, in the plot of the story fairly straightforward. But the question we have to ask is, 
if we've been given things from the king and they're supposed to be used towards the king's goals and values, what does the king value? What are his goals? How do we use what we've been given? Well, what end are we supposed to use those things uh, that we've been given? And with reality being our friend, I think one of the things we have to see here is that God values very many things toward, to all towards the end of his glory. And there's, there's some things that are all the time things that God values, things that God has valued from creation and before creation. He's called us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourself. These are things that are close to his heart. As we navigate life in his world, we're, we're, we're called to partner with him to bring beauty and order and flourishing by how we spend our lives vocationally uh, at, in our work, as a parent, as a friend, and our place in life we're called to bring order and beauty to God's world according to his definitions of order and beauty. We're to take care of the creation that we have been put in. There are these things that God cares about deeply at all times and all places. But we also see that we're in a very specific point in the story. And so we we always do the things that God always cares about. But Jesus has also shown us in the context of this parable that he's about He's up to something specific to our time and our point of the story. And here's where we'll land the plane. See, all this parable comes in the context of what has just happened. You'll notice in the very beginning in chapter, in verse 11, it says that Jesus told this parable. He said, as they heard these things, Jesus told them this parable. And so you're left wondering, what are these things? that Jesus had just, that they're hearing, that Jesus just said? What is the thing that Jesus has just done and said that now he needs to tell them this parable to show them how to live as good stewards of in this new reality? And in verse 10, the reason we included it here, even though it's not part of this parable, is this is the these things that, that, that Luke is referring to. In verse 10, these things are the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So there's things that God always cares about that we're always supposed to steward our lives to for all people in all places and all times and into eternity itself. To love God, love neighbor, bring flourishing in creation, care for what God has given us. Those are all the time things. And the list could go on into specifics. But in this place, in this time, what Jesus is up to is what, in his words, to seek and to save those who have been lost. What Jesus cares about is people. What Jesus cares about uh, in a unique way in our place and our time, not at the replacement of other things, but as a special priority for our time, is he cares about rescuing people that have become far from him, of bringing people who are far from God back into vital relational love connection with God. And that phrase he uses, the lost, it, unfortunately, in many Christian circles, it's almost used as like a, like, with like a, a little edge behind it, right? Like this lot, like those people, the lost. Literally, this is for Luke, this is for you. It's, it's a participle. Um, you got that, you took Greek. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect active participle, if you want to know. Uh, but it's a, uh, it literally, it just means those who have been lost. It's not like the lost. It's just those, th- those who are far from God those who have been lost. And Luke has already shown us exactly what God's heart is towards those who have been lost. And he's shown us who the lost are. Number one, the lost is every single one of us left to our own devices. 
It's not of those people. It's every person left to their own devices because of the, the power and pull of sin, especially in a broken world. We live far from God left to our own devices, no matter how churchy we are or religious we are, every single one of us. And then Luke shows us in three successive parables that we looked at earlier in the series that God is crazy about the, those who have been lost. He tells us the parable of the shepherd who loses a sheep and leaves the whole herd down into a dangerous ravine, braving, braving the elements just to rescue the one lost sheep. He tells us about the woman who loses the valuable coin and she so treasures this coin that she's looking frantically for the coin and she finds it and she rejoices. Yes, I got what's been lost. He tells us about the parable of the, the prodigal sons where the one son goes and he's lost from the father and when the son is just in the slightest bit coming back and he's gone and disrespected the father in ways that we can't even imagine in our cultural context. But the, the father who's been so disrespected sees the son far off and he lifts up his robes, he sprints to his boy, he throws his arms around him, he gives him a kiss, he gives him his best robe and he throws the biggest party of the year because that which has been lost, the one who has been lost has come home and He's so glad. What Jesus is showing us is his heart is for people, people like you and me, some of which were once lost and now have been rescued, some of whom are still in this process. We're not sure what to make of God yet. And God, what you need to hear if that's you is that God loves you so much. The king is crazy about you. And for the rest of us, it's to see that that's what Jesus values. Jesus loves people. He wants, to, he wants to rescue people back to relationship with him, to restore the, the, the brokenness of life in them, in us, together as a community. And so we need to be about that too, in whatever way God has called us to be, and with whatever God has given us. And so here's the thing. As we close, what is that going to look like for us? What does it mean to use what God has given us. One, what has God given us? What, what has God given you? What gifts and, and strengths has God given you by his grace? What resources has God given you? What time and place has God given you? What network of relationships has God given you? What passions has God given you? And how do you, how do you steward those things as one who's been given those things to use them towards the heart of God, which we know is for so many things, so many good things to the praise of his glory, so many things for flourishing, and particular to our time and place, towards his heart for people, to rescue, restore people to him, to see them flourish as the people they were always made to be, men and women they were always made to be. And I ask that question sincerely as a question because I don't think I can tell you this is specifically what that's gonna look like for you, individual. <laughs> Uh, there's some awesome ways that we do this as a church family. Uh, we just heard from a very beautiful and passionate opportunity from, from Bill about investing in high school students. We do this, uh, we're gonna, we've done this thing, we're going to do it again in the fall called Alpha, where we create this space where we, over dinner and drinks, have a conversation about Jesus for people who wouldn't normally talk about Jesus. And that's the whole point. It's a safe, judgment-free series of conversations about Jesus. It's an awesome thing, but maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe, maybe there's a, a unique way, a, a relationship that God's calling you to invest in or a way of navigating your relationships at work or your neighbors or uh, just a step of faith or prayer that God's inviting you to take. And, and the step might be very small. You know, this can sound so intense uh, for some of us of just kind of like, whoa, like I'm just 
barely learning about what life with Jesus is all about, and now you want me to like go talk to other people about him or love people in a way that's self-sacrificing uh, and puts me out of my comfort zone. This is a lot. And it's okay, start so small, so, so small. What's the one step God could call you to take? And for all of us, what we need to hear is that God loves us. He came to seek and to save us. That's what Jesus came to do. But if we're truthful here, whatever, even a small step in this direction is a lot. It is very far from easy if we're taking it seriously. And so as we think about what this actually looks like, we have to wonder how can we actually do it? How can we actually live in a way where we love people in such a way that we're willing to be inconvenienced by it? And I think it's this, this point that we actually need to zoom out from the details of the parable. We actually need to see how the parable is, is actually in some ways incomplete in the, whole, the context of the whole story. Because the big point here is that the king is receiving a kingdom and that we've been given resources to use towards the king's values but the, ki- the actual ruler himself is not a very accurate representation of the heart of Jesus. Remember I said earlier that we don't push the details too much. We don't read into the details too much into a parable. And so Jesus is showing us some key ways that he's like the king. He's also showing us some really important ways that he's not like the king as we put this story in contrast to what we see in the life of Jesus in the four gospel accounts. And in fact... Um, This story itself uh, is in some ways based most likely on an actual ruler of Jesus's day. In those days, the Roman Empire ruled the whole Mediterranean region. And this is taking place in, uh, in Israel. And so it's on the east side of the Mediterranean under Roman rule. And in the Roman Empire, there'd be puppet kings that would rule under under Caesar and on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so these puppet kings would go leave the region that they're from Uh, go to Rome to uh, receive their official kind of like uh, stamp of rule from Caesar and then come back to their king, to their now puppet kingdom to be ruled. And so this, this kind of story that Jesus is telling actually is how puppet kings would have received their kingdom under the Roman Empire. They would have left, left their land, gone to Rome to, quote, receive their kingdom and then come back to reign under Caesar. Uh, so for example... In 4 BC, the uh, ruler of Judea during Jesus' childhood, a guy named Archelaus, uh, who was the son of Herod, if you care, uh, he, uh, he, at 4 BC, left Jerusalem, went to Rome, received his kingdom, came back to rule. And so that's the framework that Jesus is showing us. And what Jesus wants us to see, though, is how different that model of receiving a kingdom is from his way, how Jesus rules as king. Because a ruler in Jesus's day, one of these puppet kings, uh, would have gone off to Caesar and received in great pomp and circumstance, in great honor, their kingdom before Caesar. And what the story shows us as the story goes on in Jesus's life is that Jesus' way of receiving his kingdom wasn't through honor, it was through being shamed on the cross. That Jesus' way of rescuing us 
bringing us into his kingdom, coming and having a people over which he rules in love and one day in his creation. His way of receiving his kingdom wasn't through honor, wasn't through receiving the stamp of approval of human institutions and the empire. It wasn't through being lifted up and shown to be awesome. It was through humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And so while the king of this parable would have received his kingdom in honor, King Jesus receives his kingdom in humility, humility in love to the point of dying for you and dying for me. And it's when we see that difference, when we see that Jesus is that kind of a king, a kind of king who rules over his kingdom in love and comes into his kingdom, brings us into his kingdom by laying himself down, by putting himself in our place, by putting the weight and debt of sin onto his own back, by paying my price and your price, by taking on my sin and your sin. When we see that Jesus is that kind of a king, this changes everything. It makes us not about just duty. It makes us not just about trying to get a return on investment and trying to be savvy investors with what God has given us. This is about loving a king who loved us first. It's about seeing a savior who would descend into the depths of our sin to rescue us from ourselves. And when we see a king who loves us like that, it changes everything. When we know that the God of the universe loves us like that, it changes everything. And so right now as we close, we're going to close right now. We need to do so with a full vision of that kind of king, a God who loves us like that. So I'm going to pray right now. And as I pray, I'm going to guide us into reflecting on that kind of a king, a king who loves us with that kind of self-giving love. And then as I pray here, we're going to, we have the communion elements, the Lord's Supper, which is the sacred symbol that God has given us to remember Jesus's, God's kind of love for us shown in Jesus. This self-giving kind of love, this, the, the, the cup representing the blood of Christ poured out for us as he paid for all sin, past, present, and future. The, the, the bread representing Jesus's body broken for us, together symbolizing the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of our king for us that rescues us from ourself. And we're going to remember that kind of love together as a community as we go practice that and take some time to reflection as we close. So we're going to do that. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to guide us towards seeing Jesus. And we're going to think through what it looks like now to see reality, this new story that we're a part of, reframing Jesus' reframing, reframing for us. And now how reality is our friend, how we live in response, because we have a king who is worth living for, because we have a king who loves us. So would you guys pray with me? Lord, we love you. And uh, we're so grateful for your grace, grateful for everything that you are for us in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a king, not who rules with pomp and circumstance, but a king who knelt himself in honor, in, in, in humility on our behalf. Jesus, thank you that you've done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. You took the cross for us. And because of that, we don't just see that you are the king. We don't just see it as wise to trust the king or a duty to trust the king. We see it as a joy to trust a king who loves us like that, to love and to be loved. And we pray, God, that that would reframe our view of reality. We'd see the already not yet reality of the kingdom, the great hope that we have in you, that we can experience you now. And there's a coming a day where you're going to renew and undo all the injustice of the world. And that we would live in response based on what 
you value now, that we would value what you always value and that we would use our unique time and unique places according to your values too. Would we live our lives for loving people the way that you love people? We love you because you loved us first. Help us to see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So feel free to uh, take some time of reflection. We've got the communion elements here to take on your own time. Encourage you just to come forward whenever you're ready. Take the elements. And as you do so, doing so to see the self-giving love of God for you. God bless and pray that you guys have an awesome week.